Father, it is awfully kind of you to fuss over us, to alter us in such substantial ways that we would want to welcome in the fatherless, that we would want our lives to be interrupted, that we would have planted within us concerns for others that might hijack our own concerns and agendas. Will you do that even more? Would you let the prayer of John the Baptist be one that we could earnestly pray, or that we could pray not earnestly until we meant it? He must increase, I must decrease. Would you let us find joy in that decrease as you increase in our lives? We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue this week in our most elegantly named sermon series, Give Them Heaven. It's clever, it's pithy, we're probably going to write a book about it. None of these things are true, but it is pithy, you can remember it. It is borrowed from Dallas Willard while he was dying from pancreatic cancer and something he said to his granddaughter And it's a good little expression to remind us as we work our way through Philippians, a church that is a Roman colony, the the Philippi is, have all the rights and privileges of Roman citizens, and they're proud of this. And Paul is reminding them in this joy-soaked thank you letter that they are those who have a citizenship in heaven. They're an outpost. They're an ambassadorship from the heavens to give the world a taste of another kind of life. And that is what we are up to. And today, he gives us two exemplars, and we're mainly going to focus on the one, Timothy. Two, as Joe Novenson would say, sermons in shoes. See, Paul has already told them, as Corby preached two weeks ago, that if they have any tenderness from being united to to Christ, any comfort from being in fellowship with him, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, he says. He says, none of you should do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In fact, more than wearing Patagonia, you should wear Christ who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he made himself nothing. He not only said, I want to be called a servant, I want to be treated like one. I'm willing to do that. Which is the hardest part about being a servant. And the apostle is now giving us an example of two men with whom he is in contact. Men that the Philippian church know And he's saying, these are guys who enact what I'm talking about. Timothy, he says, I'm sending him to you. And here's what's unique about Timothy, who Paul in other places will say, my true son in the faith. I have no one else like him. He adores this young man. This young man who's timid and like us has a sometimes big yellow streak going up his back. He has to be warned to be not timid, not to be ruled by his fear to be willing to suffer, to be not ashamed of Jesus. 
Words that would all be compelling to most of us. But he says, here's what's amazing about Timothy and why I can, why I can send him in my stead. Because he's like nobody else. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy is heralded by the apostle as someone who is enacting this idea of considering others better than himself, not just thinking of his own interests, but thinking of the interests of others. Now, we think in terms of special interests when it gets to be political season. People are starting to throw their candidacies in the ring now. Their names are out there. Ben Carson is going to run for president. Hillary Clinton is going to run for president. Marco Rubio is going to run for president. Jeb Bush and... I think there's, last count, there were 3,700 Republican nominees for president. (laughs) And one of the greatest insults you could throw at a politician, and it's all kind of an emperor's new clothes situation, but is that you would say, you are beholden to special interest groups. Those would be fighting words. No politician would readily admit that. Nobody, no Ben Carson would get up and say, I just want you to know that my agenda is going to regularly and routinely change depending on what the Tea Party wants from me. If they say no taxes, then no taxes and no roads and you fend for yourself, America. Because I have noticed that even anti-government people want all the things that the government offers. They just don't want to pay for it. You can think about that later. (laughs) But if he said, or if Hillary Clinton said... Whatever the gay lobby wants, whatever the ACLU wants, whatever the NAACP wants, whatever my donors want, that's what I'm going to do. So I might say one thing today, and then tomorrow I might say another thing, and it's all going to depend on what these special interests want from me, because I am the candidate who is beholden to special interest groups. If anybody said that, they would be shooting themselves in the foot. They have to pretend like that's not the case. But Christians actually entered the world, and we're not politicians. Some of us are, apparently. Just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> we need Christian politicians. Please, do it. Christians, though, are people who let themselves be altered frequently by special interest groups. They let themselves be altered by the interests of Jesus Christ, and they let themselves be altered by the interests of others. This is what makes us unique. This is what can make a Christian seem like a Martian, because it is so rare. It's so rare in a moment where it is easy to imagine and easy to say ridiculous things like, I can do what I want, it's not going to hurt everybody, anybody else. What I do in the privacy of my home doesn't matter to anybody. What I believe in my own house, it doesn't matter to anybody. How I do my work, that doesn't hurt anyone else. It's a naive view. And Christians say, no, no, no. We are beholden to special interests. We're going to adopt and alter depending on the needs of those special interests. That's that's how we act. We've got an example in Timothy. Paul esteems as a one who has a genuine interest in the church's welfare. Everyone looks out for his own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. 
This week, my son won this award. It was very touching to me because it was, it was called the John Strang Award. And John Strang was this Bible teacher at Macaulay for 50 years. And I had him as a teacher, and I loved him very much. And he was a man of great humor and a man of great sensitivity, and he poured his life out for others. He said ridiculous jokes. The dean would sometimes say to him, Mr. Strang, well, hello, Mr. Strange. How are you doing today? And he would say, ooh, ooh, there is no E. Because his name was Strang, not Strange. You get it? Sometimes he would say, who was on the road to Damascus? And where was Saul going? That's what he would call a little low-key humor. He would pray for us. On Fridays, when we'd have our Bible test, if good, he would say, treats, hints, and bonus. And when he would pray for us, he would say, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for these fine young men. Help them to do good work, and above all, their own. (laughs) He was a memorable man, and he taught us what you've seen somewhere before. It's silly, but I remember it from when I was 12 years old, when I got my first NIV 1984 This was 1985. That's why I like this the best and why I hate Zondervan for going to the 2011. I mean, dislike Zondervan strongly. But he told us the acrostic joy. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. That's how you get joy. And I remember that from being a 12-year-old son and my Son won the John Strang Award, and I was so honored to hear this because I love this man so much. And I thought about him saying this, Jesus first and others second, yourself last. And then you can be cynical and say, what does that even mean? Well, don't do that. But instead, think about this. We're those who let ourselves be moved by the special interests of others. And let's think about this. Paul is esteeming Timothy as somebody who says, The interests of Jesus are going to be primary in the frontal lobe of my life. The interests of Jesus are going to be an interest to me. So what does that mean? What are the interests of Jesus? Well, one thing Paul implies here is that the interests of Jesus are the church. These people that he spilled his blood for. In another place, Paul tells the Ephesian church, tells these elders to make sure they watch over the flock that God has entrusted to them, over which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, which he purchased with his own blood. At great expense to himself, he has made you all his, and you're very valuable to him. And in fact, like any good parent, Jesus' well-being is tied up with yours. Timothy has a genuine interest in the church's welfare, which Paul says is the interest of Jesus Christ. You know, and that's why Paul, I mean, Saul on the way to Damascus, when he gets knocked off his horse, Jesus can put a finger in his chest and say, why are you trying to beat the snot out of me? And Paul can say, I ain't never seen you, man. 
Because Jesus, in, in Jesus' mind, the people with whom he's one, if you mess with them, you're messing with him. So how you treat each other is how you're treating him. Paul can say in another place, why would you do something to destroy the faith of your brother for whom Christ died? Woo! That's a really serious thing to him. How precious it is, the person sitting on your right and your left and the person behind you, even if they didn't shower, even if they're annoying, there's someone for whom Christ died and they're of particular interest to Jesus. And you have to be moved by that special interest. But it's even broader than that because we're also told, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We're in this Eastertide season, post-resurrection. And Jesus says, all authority, all authority. And we're told that he's the king of all, though it's not apparent where he's king yet. And I think Paul must have been envisioning when he thinks about the interests of Jesus, he must have been thinking about the Lion King. Thank you that three of you are listening. Because you know this poignant scene in The Lion King where they're looking over this cliff and they're looking over the whole animal kingdom and this flat land, this beautiful, that sunset. And Mufasa is talking to Simba. And he says, Simba, kingdoms begin and kingdoms end. One day my kingdom will end and yours will begin. And you will be ruler over everything that the sun touches. And Simba says, Everything? Everything. Everything that the light touches. As far as the eye can see, Simba, you're going to be ruler of it. And the scriptures would say in a very real way, even though it's not apparent to everyone, one day it will be in disguise. What's the word I'm looking for? One day it will be irrefutable that Jesus is in control of all of it, that he's the king over all of it. But we're the people who have come under his sway and believe that he's in control of it now, which means that also Jesus has a great interest in everything that happens in human endeavor starting when you leave this place today, including what you're doing in this place right now. It matters to him when you drive home and you have lunch together. It matters to him the way you treat each other. Kids, the way you treat your brother and your sister. Because Jesus made them and he likes them even though you don't. Yeah. See, a baby's getting distressed over there. That's a lot of pressure, man. When you go to work, Jesus has an interest in that banking job you do and the kids that you teach the children that you parent, these are his interest. And it's an exciting thing to walk out into a world where everything the light touches is of interest to your king and therefore can be of interest to you. Eugene Peterson, in one of his books, stuck with me probably 20 years ago when I read this. He said, when my pastor used to come over when I was young, he used to look at me and he would say, how is your soul doing today? And he would always use the word soul in all capital letters. Just like last night, my 
family. I was asking if they need anything from the grocery store, and they were writing me in all caps, and I said, why are you yelling at me? <laughs> we were joking. They weren't really yelling. I'm just hilarious. I can't turn off the humor, you know? It's just like boom, boom, boom. Thank you for obliging me. How is your soul doing today? In all caps. But it made him, he says, as a young man, think the only thing that mattered was these internal spiritual realities. But see, Jesus isn't just concerned, although he is, about how your soul is doing. He's concerned about making lunch in the morning for your kids. And how you interact with the people at work. And the way you prefer your customers' needs over your own. And the quality of the work that you do as you do it unto him. He has interests everywhere, which is one of the great exciting things when you hear Paul say, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. It's this realization that the best thing that Jesus has to offer you is this living moment by moment resourcing with you right this second. See, the apostle, while he's in jail, can say the resource I know that I have is a presence that won't leave. And so I can hope in him, and his interest can become mine. So it starts in the morning. You know how you wake up sometimes in the morning? Some of you wake up in the morning, and you, the hills are alive. And you're, you're, you're in a bad musical. Oh, great musical, Sound of Music. And some of you wake up like me, and you hate everybody. And you're like, no, I'm not doing it again. I'm not going to. The night was too short. I just went to bed at like three. It's like six. I'm not doing this again. No, I don't get up at six. Let's see, those of you who are happy in the morning, you're dead by nine o'clock when I'm just getting revved up. But see, you start the morning sometimes or you hit the night or you come home. You're like Owen Wilson and Marley and me and you're stuck in the car. You see your wife in there with the babies. And you can't go in. And you're, if you're Jennifer Aniston in the movie, you're, you're, this is the witching hour. You need him to come in here because you're dying. And you don't want to go in there because you're dying. Is this all hypothetical, fictitious stuff to you? And to think that there is someone in the heavens who has promised a moment-by-moment real active presence in your life that he's interested in all these things. He's interested in you helping your wife and in you loving your children. He's interested in you helping the lady down the street. He's interested in you letting your life be interrupted and will resource you for it. So I've taken when I'm stumbling around making coffee in the morning and starting the oatmeal when it's my time to do this and I'm just hating everything, and I don't want the day to continue. Lord Jesus, be here now. Lord Jesus, energize me now. Lord Jesus, wake me up now. Lord Jesus, the reality of his presence. And then usually five or six hours later, I'm good. (laughs) Just kidding. It doesn't take that long. But it's this constant hoping in the Lord Jesus, believing with confidence that he's going to be there in all the moments that you need him to be there during the day. To love, to alter yourself, to care for others, 
to suppress yourself so that you can care for others. He'll be there as you move out into all the places that the light touches to adopt the interests of Jesus. Jesus first, others second. Let yourself be moved by the special interests of others. I have no one else like him who takes a general, genuine interest in your welfare. Now let me urge you this. You know, how, do you, how would the apostle know if Paul, Timothy's genuine interest in their welfare? My guess is he's had to see it and act it in some way. And the kind of willingness to hurt with them, to be happy with them, to be willing to get their trouble on him. See, genuine interest usually generates actual actions. And that's how you would know. There's this great scene in Brother Ker- Brothers Karamazov where this woman who's struggling with her faith comes to Father Zosima, this great and venerated priest. And she says, I struggle so much with my faith. How can I be sure? How can I be certain, she says. He says, you cannot be certain, but you can grow sure. Give yourself in the service of active love. Strive to love your neighbor actively and indefatigably. SAT word. And she says, oh, yes, the love of my neighbor. Would you know that there are times when I dream of throwing off everything and going and living with the nuns and taking care of the poor, washing the feet of the leper, Spending myself in service of those who need it most. And he looks at her in the eye in a moment of great pastoral care. And he says, it is well and good that your mind is filled with such dreams and not others. Perhaps someday you will do a good deed in reality. We can fool ourselves by having all manner of good intentions in our head. But they need to find expression. Apparently, Timothy has found expression. Because Paul can identify, he's proven himself in his service, he says. As a son with his father in the service of the gospel. He's proven himself. There's been demonstrable evidence of his care for the welfare of others. Active, practical. How can I help? It's a posture that you take. I'm here for you, not you here for me. So you could try things. For instance, you ever walked away from a conversation thinking, oh, I can't believe I said that. They must think I'm such an idiot. Did I have this thing hanging off my tooth when I was talking to them just now? They think I'm such an idiot. They think I'm such... Now, have you ever just paused for at least an eighth of a second and started started to wonder? Now, I'm thinking this. They're probably thinking the same thing. How did I think about them? Oh, I thought it was pretty nice to be with them. I find them a delightful chap. Why don't you, instead of thinking about how they thought of you, why don't you just let them know that you enjoyed them? Take a genuine interest in their welfare. Say, I bet you're just as neurotic as I am. So instead of me sitting here and deliberating all day long about what a fool you must think I am, I'm just going to go ahead and try to alleviate some of your concern for thinking yourself a fool. And I'm going to write you a note. I'm going to send you a text message with big thumbs. I don't understand emoticons. I get them, and I'm like, where do they find these things? Eyes moving back and forth. Check marks and oversized digits. But letting someone know, when I, I remember one time sitting, 
and the scholarship committee of Dave Worland and Henry Henniger and about 12 other people, and I was terrified. I always had this sense, and I still do, that someone's going to say, why on earth do you think you even belong to Jesus, much less want to serve his church? You might should work at a sporting goods store, maybe, at the cashier's line. And after my meeting with these people, where I'm sure my shirt looked like I had just jumped into a swimming pool, Henry Henniger looks at me when I'm walking out and he says, if your wife asks you how you did, you tell her you did very well. He took a genuine interest in my welfare. He anticipated what it might have been like to be an idiot to be questioned and inspected by others, and then to have to leave and know they're going to talk about you. He anticipated it, and he acted in a way that I could understand. He might have told you the same thing the other day, did he? He told Josh the same thing the other day. It's a good move. You all say hi to Josh and Liz when you get done with the service. If you're going to take genuine interest in others, of course, that means sometimes you're going to have to do something that's unpopular. You might have to do something that's difficult. You might have to be misunderstood. This happens in parenting all the time. You might have to say no, and your kids may not understand it. You may have to say something hard to care about the welfare of somebody else, and they may not like it. But part of your concern for their welfare means you're willing to be misunderstood. I had a good friend the other day. Not the other day. A while back, he was teaching his daughter how to ski. And this is a really handsome, wonderful, tender-hearted father. And I'm not, you know, he looks like a model. I'm not just talking about myself. And he, he has three kids, daughters. And they're teaching them to ski. And they hadn't been able to ski very much. And his little nine-year-old daughter, feisty as all get out, was having trouble getting up on the skis. And so he said, now listen, honey. And I could just see him doing it. He's so tender and gentle. Listen, honey, you might possibly, perchance, he knows he can't come head on. You've got to go sideways with this gal. You might just want to think about bending your knees just slightly, just keeping your weight back just a little bit. And she said, shut your face, you big fat poop. That's what she said. Shut your face, you big fat poop. (laughs) Now, don't say this to your parents, kids. It will hurt their hearts. He was trying to help and he got abused for it. Jesus does this sort of thing all the time. You are going to be misunderstood sometimes if you have genuine concern for others. Your concern is going to be misinterpreted. But if you're suspending your own self-interest enough to care about other people, you'll go ahead and do that. I'm going to wrap up here. We're people who let ourselves be moved by the special interests of others. We let ourselves be interrupted. We let ourselves be misinterpreted. We let ourselves be expended in actual ways, for the interests of Jesus, which are everything that the light touches, and for the concerns of others, where our genuine interest needs to generate actual action. And I close with this because this is the kind of idea that I think the Apostle Paul has. 
That when you think about this idea that we're enacting Jesus' interest in the world and that Jesus is interested, he's propped himself up against the ruin of the whole world. He's concerned about what happens every place. And he's given us as this little community, this circulatory system of grace to enact and to vivify, to concretize his concern for the world then everything we do has a bearing on other people. Everything is interconnected. And Garrison Keillor shares this story about a man who was Jim Norberg. He's from his Wobegon Tales. Who was fixing to go to Chicago with a colleague, his a co-worker who was a female and who was not his wife. And he found himself attracted to her. He found himself envisioning things on this trip that he ought not be envisioning. And as he waited for her in this long ride they were going to have together, he dreamed of what that might be. He started looking down the street at the houses lining the street and he thought to himself, you know, this street has been good for my flesh and blood. It's the integrity of my neighbors that has profited me and mine so well he realizes that what he's about to do might bring collapse to his marriage, it might hurt his family, but he also wonders, what's going to happen to my street, to my community if I do this? And as he contemplates his neighborhood, he says this, I sat on the lawn looking down at the street, and I saw that we all depend on each other. I saw that although my, I thought my sins could be secret, that they were no more secret than an earthquake. All these houses and all these families, my infidelity would somehow shake them. It will pollute the drinking water. It will emit noxious gases in the ventilators of the elementary school. When we scream in senseless anger, a little girl two streets away spills her gravy on a white linen cloth. If I go to Chicago with this woman who's not my wife, somehow the school patrol will forget to guard the intersection and someone's child will be injured. A sixth grade teacher will think, what does it matter? And eliminate South America from geography. Our minister will decide, who cares? And not preach that sermon on giving to the poor. Somehow my adultery will cause the man in the grocery store to say, who cares about the health department? This sausage was good yesterday. It certainly can't be any worse today. By the end of the time, he realized that the whole fabric of his world would be injured by his infidelity. We're all very connected to each other. Our sin is no more secret than an earthquake. It causes ripples. And if you think of sin as preoccupation with yourself, my selfishness is an earthquake that sends tremors throughout this community. If I only care about me and mine, I deprive a world that Jesus has set himself up in defense of. We are people to be moved by the self-giving love of our Savior. We are to be moved by his interests and the interests of others. Everywhere that the light touches, in actual action. I pray that you will be those who practice genuine interest in ways our world can understand.